Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. This week, we also saw a new study looking at brain scans of people before and after contracting COVID, showing that they had more loss of gray matter and tissue damage than those that did not get infected. Notably, the study looked at those that were older and had more mild infections, meaning they didn't go to the hospital. And the shrinkage and damage was primarily focused in areas associated with smell. For more on all this, we'll speak to Pam Bellick, health and science writer at the New York Times. It's a really interesting study because it appears to be the first time that researchers have had access to brain scans of people before they got COVID. And then about three years later, they had scans of these same people. And some of those people had COVID in between. So this is medical information that comes from a huge sort of treasure trove of medical records in the United Kingdom. It's called the UK Biobank, and they have medical records of lots and lots of people. And what they did is they focused on almost 800 people, and and they were able to see about 400 of them had got COVID, and so they had these before scans of their brain, and then they had an after scan about four and a half months after they had their COVID infection. So they were looking at this to see, did anything change in their brain? And what they found is that the people who had COVID lost more gray matter than the people who didn't. So normal aging, we naturally lose a little bit of gray matter in our brains every year, tiny percentage. And the patients who had COVID ended up losing significantly more, maybe up to 2% more. It's not huge, but in terms of sort of brain volume, it's significant. And as you said, most of the areas where they noticed this change were in brain areas related to sense of smell, which kind of makes sense. But because it's the brain and there's so much overlap in the brain and almost everything in the brain has like multiple functions, some of these areas also have other brain functions related to memory and things like that. So it raises questions about like, what does this mean? The the typical brain loss was about 0.2 to 0.3% annually. And uh, yeah, these people uh, went from 0.2 to almost 2%. So that is a pretty big jump right there. Some things to note though, from this study, they were older people. So these were people 51 to 81 that they were looking at. And also most of these people that were infected had milder symptoms. So they, and you know, we don't know what the correlation were between the people that actually did lose their sense of smell or people that had long COVID, which uh, tracks with some of these other uh, neurological things like, uh, you know, the brain fog and uh, a memory loss and just kind of hard to normally function. Exactly. One of the big unknowns, there are many unknowns with this study. One of the big unknowns is what was health like for these folks? Did they have symptoms? Did they lose their sense of smell? Do they have long COVID? We really don't know that. The researchers did not have access to that kind of information. So they're sort of looking in a vacuum. What they're, what they're finding is they did see brain changes, but they cannot correlate them to people's symptoms. 
So, yes, and they were older people, so this can not say really anything about anybody who's under 50. And it's just sort of raising this question. I think the most definitive thing that you can say is that it is one of the strongest studies showing that something does actually change in your brain when you have COVID. We don't really know why. There's a few different theories about what could be causing this, but it appears pretty good evidence here anyway that having COVID can produce some kind of change in your brain. The other big unknown here is how long does this last? Because these folks were scanned only once after their COVID infection, about four and a half months after on average. But a year out, is their brain still look different? We don't know. Yeah, and one of the uh, big culprits, and uh, they suspect that one of the big culprits is uh, one of the big culprits that are, uh, you know, uh, a key in a lot of the problems when people get COVID, inflammation. So they think inflammation plays a big part in all of this. Yes, that's definitely one theory. Another theory that I thought was kind of interesting is that it's possible that if you're losing your sense of smell, the information, the sort of sensory information that being able to smell something carries to your brain is kind of interrupted. And so it's possible that what they call sensory deprivation is sort of causing some areas of your, of your brain to be less active and, and, and maybe, you know, lose some of, their, some of their volume. So that's kind of interesting. The one area that I think most, but not everybody in the field is sort of has a consensus about is that it doesn't appear that COVID is a virus that invades the brain directly all that often. It might be able to, there's some evidence it can, but that doesn't seem to be the way this virus really works. So we're probably talking about an effect that is kind of secondary to your body's response to the infection. Pam Bellick, health and science writer at the New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. This week, we also had a sad follow-up to a story that was a medical first. David Bennett, the first patient ever to receive an animal organ genetically modified to prevent rejection in a person, has died. He died two months after being implanted with a pig heart. The heart was working fine for weeks, but Bennett's health deteriorated in the last few days. For more on what we know, we'll speak to Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. We don't know the cause of death. We don't know if the organ failed slowly or if something else went on. He had been bedbound for months before the procedure, so it may just be that he was so weak that his body couldn't recover. But he did seem to be doing really well. He watched the Super Bowl, sang along with America the Beautiful, was progressing in physical therapy. So people were hopeful that he would continue to do well, but sadly he did not. Yeah, as you mentioned, uh, we don't know exactly what happened just yet, but for a time, the heart was pumping. Everything was working according to plan. Right. He took to him. He was doing fine and uh, no, no sign of rejection of the organ. So the immune process seemed to be working properly. So, again, we don't really know yet. There's going to be a scientific paper in a couple of months explaining it, but we don't really know yet what happened. So this is definitely at least a setback for Mr. Bennett, uh, the unfortunate thing, right, for him and his family. But overall, still, the operation was hailed as a success. Uh, You know, this whole thing, the process is called xenotransplantation, where we're putting animal parts in people. And, uh, you know, at the time when we talked about it, everybody was, you know, really, really excited about the future possibilities of what could happen with these types of processes. 
in medicine, being first isn't really so great. They really had no idea what would happen to him. And he did get two extra months. He got some more time with his family. He never did get to see his dog Lucky again, which he had been hoping to do. But he, he did get a, a bit of a life extension. And the hope is that what can be learned from his experience can be transferred to the next patient and the one after that. Yeah, we have uh, some 41,000 Americans that received transplanted organs last year. Uh, about 3,800 of those were heart transplants and, uh, and replacements that people needed. So obviously, you know, when something like this is successful, people are really excited about the potential to get all these people that are on these transplant lists help. There was some ethical concerns raised at the time. A couple of things. One that, uh, you know, uh, animal advocates saying that we shouldn't uh, raise animals to be sacrificed for human benefits. And the other part was the objection to Bennett himself, who served some prison time for attacking a man with, with a knife. At the time that we spoke about this, that part of the story hadn't come out just yet. Right. So doctors will say that they treat the patient in front of them. They don't care about the patient's history. And so they they. It was immaterial to them what his past was. And, you know, as it turned out, and, and as is generally true with medical first, you don't really necessarily want to be the first. In some ways, one could argue that you might not want the leading citizen of the day to be the first person um, because they didn't expect, they didn't necessarily expect a long-term positive outcome there. You know, the other part of it, too, was, you know, the reason why Mr. Bennett chose to go through this route, too, was because he was rejected to be on the heart transplant list. He wasn't following doctor's orders. So, uh, you know, they say, I think there's, they, I mean, they have some stats uh, that go with it. If uh, people don't follow the doctor's orders, their chances at uh, overcoming and, and lasting a long time with transplanted organs are not very well if you're not following all the rules. So that was another reason why he wasn't even eligible for the heart transplant in the first place. Right, exactly. You quoted the statistic earlier about the number of people on the heart transplant list, but many people never make it that far for either hearts or kidneys or other organs because they don't meet the strict definitions, the strict requirements for qualifying for an organ transplant. So the hope is that if you know transplantation can be shown to work, that it could expand the potential for people to, to get a new organ. Again, there, there are some ethical issues. Clearly, it does cost an animal a life, and it will take a while to get it right. And people will die and probably more people will die in the process of that. The last few times that we talked about, they were kidneys that were transplanted into humans, although I think they were brain dead patients. There was two occasions where they were brain dead patients, but the kidneys did start producing urine. So they were working. Uh, obviously, this time we were talking about the heart. It lasted two months. But, uh, you know, how much more time and effort are they are they going into this avenue? Well, there are a handful of teams in the U.S. and one in Germany potentially some in China who are working on this in Japan, solid organ transplants from pigs, gene-edited pigs. So I think, if anything, this Mr. Bennett's example will encourage them to keep trying. Hearts and kidneys are the first organs because they're the most commonly transplanted and the easiest, I guess, to get to work. So those expect the most progress the soonest in those two organs. Karen Weintraub, right. health reporter at USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Finally for this week, the Great Resignation saw many people choose to leave their toxic jobs for better ones or leave for jobs that offered a better work-life balance. But not everyone left, and some just opted to take a little easier and work less. Employers struggling to retain workers are just having to deal with it. The hustle culture is over, and the challenge for employers is to figure out how to navigate changing workplace attitudes. For more on the new coasting culture at work, we'll speak to Aki Ito, senior correspondent at Business Insider. What I found 
what's so interesting about this story is that I think a lot of us know that tons of Americans have reevaluated their relationship to work over these last two years. They want to make work less central in their lives. But I think the really interesting thing is that the pandemic has also created this economy over the last year where workers are actually able to live out their new resolve to make work less central because companies have become so desperate to keep everybody on payroll that they're willing to let workers get away with a lot less work than they used to. So it's it's really the perfect time for workers to coast if they want to. Whether you call it coasting or not, I think it depends on the person. Some people are working exactly the number of hours that they're supposed to, 40 hours a week. You probably wouldn't call this coasting, but 40 hours is still significantly less than they've ever worked in their lives. Other people are really, really pushing it, working maybe 10 to 15 hours a <laughs> right. week, which is remarkable. Quitting in place is also a term that uh, HR people use for this. You're just not putting as much in, but you're not leaving. And you're right, you know, for the employers, it's a hassle to hire, go through the process of hiring somebody new and training them. That could take months, really. For the person themselves, if the mindset is you're going to start coasting a little bit, I mean, it's just as work or more to start all over again. So that's kind of the balance uh, that people have to play. Right. I mean, companies hate this. They Companies, every HR department hates the great resignation right now. Ideally, they, they want workers to work really hard. They don't want workers to leave. But if it's the choice between losing an employee altogether, getting 0% contribution for months and months on end, they'd rather have somebody contributing at, let's say, you know, 50% or 80% than getting nothing at all just because it's so hard and so expensive to hire right now. Now, explain to me how this looks in practice, because you spoke to a few people, uh, like the way you put it, but you described it as a, a delicate experiment. So, uh, you know, carefully pushing on the edges to see what you can get away with. Yeah, I, I think, you know, a lot of overachievers, traditional overachievers would really identify with this. But if you're used to working, you know, maybe 70 hour weeks your entire career, then it's hard to suddenly, you know, scale that back, maybe working 40 hours or 35 hours a week, all of a sudden you're used to, you know, being a superstar and it's uncomfortable really pushing the limits there. For one uh, employee I, I talked to, I called him Justin in my story, he did it bit by bit, you know, shaving off half an hour here, shaving off half an hour there, running errands in the middle of the day, seeing uh, how much he can get away with until he scaled it back to 40. And he wants to scale it back even more in the months ahead. For other professionals, they just did it right away. As soon as they decided that this wasn't the way they wanted to live, that they wanted to work less and make more time for the rest of their lives. They just really, you know, cut it all the way back, uh, working maybe 30, 35 hours a week, believing that they could get away with it. And they are yeah. getting away with it so far. Yeah. And in an extreme example, you spoke to somebody in the story, his name was Anthony. So he worked remotely. His manager had little technical understanding of what he did. So it was that perfect storm there. And uh, he was working like 15 hours a week, billing them for 40 he picked up like a second job kind of doing the same ploy. And I think now he's taking a few months off, you know, vacation time because he was able to rack up that money. So great for him. Right. But what does that say to other people that might be in some of these positions, other people that are looking for jobs and they're saying, man, these people are just coasting. You know, you know talk a lot about some of these terms in here, you know, the hustle culture versus the coaster culture. 
you know, the, the story of Anthony really, I think, elicited the strongest reactions out of the readers of the story. A lot of people were like, Anthony, my man, he's my hero. Um, <laughs> you know, he should be exploiting his employer after he was exploited by his other employers in the past. You know, he used to put in crazy hours. And so this is kind of like payback time. But other people were really mad and they were like, you know, I work really hard and it's unfair that people are doing deceptive things like this to try to get away with less work. That means I have to put in more, but I'm not getting paid more to do that extra work. So, I, you know, I don't know which which way you might lean in this dilemma. It's interesting. Yeah. It's 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 definitely a very radical approach to work that um, I, I think a lot of people wouldn't be able to do. <laughs> right. You know, the reason why I love this story so much right now is because we've been doing a lot of talk, a lot of conversations about what these changes in attitude towards the workplace really mean because of the pandemic, right? The pandemic halted everything. It changed everybody's mindset. And now that we're trying to get back to the normal, right? Um, it's this big challenge for employers. You know, do they accept this new professional mindset? People are willing to get up and leave at the drop of a hat, and then it leaves them with a huge hole of people that they need filling, you know, and then it's tough for them to resume normal operations. There's so many cascading effects that happen, but this is that challenge that employers need to figure out now. I think a lot of employers see the situation that they're in right now, and they think it's totally temporary. They think it's just late stage pandemic burnout, or they think it's because of the really hot economy and nothing else. But I think employers who are dismissing this as a completely temporary phenomenon are overlooking the really important reality that people have reevaluated their relationship to work and what to themselves feels a permanent way. And that means that even once the economy cools, even once the pandemic is over, they probably want to continue to work less than they did before. They no longer want to put 120% of themselves into their job day in and day out. And you know, I hope that means that corporate America will make room for employees like this who, you know, they want to do good work. They they want to put in an honest day's work, but they also don't want to sacrifice their evenings and their weekends the way that they used to. They want to have a life outside of work, too. And I, right. I, I hope companies make room for employees like this, because I think that's healthier for everybody. There's always a situation where somebody will step up and do your job if you don't want to do it. And so how does this kind of evolve over time? You know, do these new attitudes take hold and that's the new norm? And what happens in the future? It's not like I think anyone's arguing that these people who are working 30 hours a week should be paid the same as the people who are putting in, you know, 70 hours a week. The yeah. people who work harder and are producing more should get paid more. They should get bigger raises. They should get more promotions. But I still think the people who don't want to put in as much effort as they did before, they should still get the respect of their managers. They should still enjoy a place in corporate America. They should still have job security. So ideally, we'd come to a future where there's room for both people, people who want to work really hard and earn a lot and people who don't who want to make time for other aspects of their lives. Aki Ito, senior correspondent at Business Insider. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.